continue the uh, portion of God's Word that we looked at and began to study last Lord's Day uh, morning, Revelation 20. I'm going to go back and pick up the first three verses that we looked at last week, and we'll read on down through verses uh, 4 through 6 this morning's uh, portion of God's Word. I hope you have a Bible in front of you. Grab one from underneath the chair. Uh, in front of you if you need to do that, and uh, urge you to follow me along on the back of your bulletin as we look into this portion of the thousand years. Let's read our passage, though. Uh, Revelation 20, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 for us now. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. These are God's very words, very Words that he breathed out through his holy apostles and prophets. Let's uh, pray for his help as we look into and attempt to understand the truth of his word in chapter 20 this morning. Pray with me, please. Now, Lord, we come confessing our great need at this time. Uh, Without the ministry of your Holy Spirit, we would be at a complete loss to understand the truth for it to transform our hearts and lives, that we would be changed people. This is what we pray for, Lord, that your word would indeed change us. I pray, give us eyes to see, Father, ears to hear the truth that is before us. And I ask in particular that you would strengthen my heart and mind so that I can preach your word today. Strengthen us with your grace, Heavenly Father. Let us see Jesus lifted up. And do this by your good spirit who indwells us. We commit our time to you now and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as the Apostle John writes these words uh, to believers in the first century A.D., Roman persecutions uh, were raging in the ancient world. Uh, Scholar William Hendrickson writes, Martyrs were calmly laying their heads under the executioner's sword. Paul had already done this, also James. Rather than say the emperor is Lord or drop incense on the altar of a pagan priest as a token of worshiping the emperor, believers were confessing their Christ 
even in the midst of flames. Uh, and while they were thrown before the wild beasts in the Roman amphitheaters. But Christ is not unmindful of his grievously afflicted disciples, Hendrickson observes. He sustains them in order that they may remain faithful to the end. Christ gives his sorely tried and tempted church a glimpse of the eternal weight of glory that awaits them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes of this eternal weight of glory. He says, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And this eternal weight of glory is what we see in the verses before us this morning. In John's second vision of the thousand years, uh, a glimpse of that eternal glory that the saints in heaven now enjoy and that awaits all believers. Christ gives this glimpse of glory through John's second vision of the thousand years, through John's second vision of this chapter. Last week we, uh, we noted that this part of Revelation uh, chapter 20 begins a new section, uh, another cycle in the book of Revelation. Once again, John describes the entire gospel age from a different vantage point. Yet again, uh, John gives another description, the seventh and final description of the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And throughout chapter 20, John refers to this long period of time as the thousand years. And John sees several events related to the thousand years. We looked at the first event last Lord's Day morning, uh, the restraint of Satan. We studied this last Lord's Day, verses 1 through 3, and we saw the timing of his restraint, the nature of his restraint, and the duration of of his restraint. During this gospel age that you and I are living in, Satan has been restrained from deceiving the nations. This is why we have an international church in this era and why we're not all Jewish this morning. It's because Satan has been restrained from deceiving the nations. He's also being held back from mounting a worldwide attack on the church which we will see will be uh, lifted at the end of this age. Well, from this first vision of the restraint of Satan, John moves on to describe the reign of the saints in verse 6, or excuse me, verse 4. What, what's happened to believers who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus? These are mentioned today in verse 4. What's become of those who've suffered for their faith and persevered till the end? What's happened to our loved ones who have preceded us in death? Is, is following Christ, it, it, will it be worth it all in the end? Might even be your question this morning that uh, you're asking. What, what's happened to my loved one after their long uh, struggle with their health? What's happened to them? What are they doing now? And is my following Christ 
after all this time of resisting the world, the flesh, and the devil, after disciplining myself for the purpose of godliness, will it be worth it in the end? It's in this next vision of chapter 20. It's as though Christ says to his church, to his beleaguered church, to his tested and tried church, let me show you. Let me show you. Let me give you a glimpse of glory that's ahead. Let me show you the reign of the saints. There are four elements of this glimpse of glory that I want to point out to you in our passage today. Uh, four elements in the reign of the saints that I'd like to describe to you. Uh, the first one is their seats. The first element in the description of their reign is where they are seated. Uh, believers who have died are seated on thrones in heaven. Notice verse 4 with me. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Now, how do we know that these thrones are located in heaven? Many believe that the saints are seated on thrones and reigning with Christ on earth during the thousand years. How do we know that these thrones are heavenly thrones? Well, there are three reasons we know that these thrones are located in heaven. First of all, this word throne is used 47 times in the book of Revelation. One time it refers to the throne of Satan. Two other times it refers to the throne of the beast. But the other 44 times that John uses this word all seem to be referring to thrones that are located in heaven. This is one reason why we know the saints are seated on heavenly thrones. It's because of this word throne and how John uses it throughout the rest of the book. We know these thrones are heavenly thrones because John is borrowing this image from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. Uh, Daniel chapter 7 describes heavenly thrones. Let me read uh, the verses from Daniel 7 uh, in Daniel's vision. He says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. John's referring to this heavenly scene as he writes these words in Revelation 20 verse 4. We know these are heavenly thrones because the previous reference was to heavenly thrones uh, that, that John is borrowing from. Well, that's the second reason. There's a third reason we know these are heavenly thrones is because John tells us that these saints are with Christ. 
seated at the right hand of God. If you'll look all the way down to the last sentence of verse 4 in your copy of God's word, it says, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Paul describes Christ as seated at the right hand in the heavenly places in Ephesians chapter 1. Psalm 110 also says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We know that the saints are seated on heavenly thrones because these believers are with Christ. And until Christ returns in judgment, he is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. We see their seats to begin with. Believers who have died are seated with Christ on heavenly thrones. And so think of some of our dear saints who have worshipped with us over the years at New Covenant, now seated on heavenly thrones, uh, uh, seated alongside Christ and reigning with him. We see their seats. The second thing, or the second element of this reign of the saints, the second thing that we see is their souls. The souls of believers have been raised spiritually to reign with Christ. Look again with me at verse 4, and let's continue reading towards the middle of verse 4. It says, also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. Please note the word souls in that, toward the beginning of that phrase. Uh, also, I saw the souls of those, is what John writes. This Greek term refers to the immaterial part of a person, not their physical body. Uh, soul refers to a person's inner life and not their outer physical existence. One Greek uh, dictionary defines soul as the seat and center of the inner life of men. So John sees the souls of believers in heaven. These are deceased believers who've been raised spiritually. They're alive. They're seated with Christ on thrones, and they reign with, with him in heaven. And John, the reason John uses the word souls to describe these departed saints is because they're in the intermediate state. Now, what in the world is that? I can hear you ask yourself. Well, think of what the word intermediate means, and you get an idea of what... Uh, what theologians are referring to. Intermediate means in, in the middle or in between something. And the intermediate state is the condition of being between bodies. Every Christian that's died up to this point in time is no longer in their physical earthly body. They are presently with the Lord, but they're waiting still for their glorified body. Listen to Dr. R.C. Sproul defined this thing I'm calling the intermediate state. He says, this view holds that at death, the believer's soul, this idea that we are looking at in verse 4, their soul goes immediately to be with Christ, to enjoy a continuous, conscious 
personal existence while awaiting the final resurrection of the body. Uh, the classical view is that at death the souls of believers are immediately glorified. They are made perfect in holiness and enter immediately into glory. Their bodies, however, remain in the grave awaiting final resurrection. The state of the believer after death is both different and better than what we experience in this life, though not as different or as blessed as it will be in the final resurrection. In the intermediate state, we will enjoy the continuity of conscious personal existence in the presence of Christ. And, and we read, we can read about this intermediate state in passages like 2 Corinthians 5 where Paul says this, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And there you hear uh, Paul describe uh, that when we're out of our bodies, when we've died, we enter the intermediate state and wait for our future glorified body. Listen to Philippians 1 where Paul mentions the same thing. He says, my desire is to part, is to depart and and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh that is in his body is more necessary on your account. He goes on to say, therefore I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So these saints, John sees their souls because they've departed from their earthly body, but they await their future glorified body. When Jesus Christ returns, the bodies of these departed saints will be raised from the grave and transformed into glorified bodies and reunited with their souls in heaven. You can read of this in 1 Thessalonians 4. And if you and I are, are still living when Christ returns, our earthly bodies will be immediately transformed into glorified bodies on the spot in the twinkling of an eye, Paul says. I can think of plenty of things about my earthly body that I would love to see changed in the twinkling of an eye. Listen to what Paul says in this, in this uh, wonderful and encouraging passage. He is going to, you're going to hear him describe how uh, believers who have already died are going to be reunited with their glorified bodies. And then you're going to hear him describe how we who are still alive when Jesus returns will be transformed into glorified bodies. This is what Paul says. I tell you this, 1 Corinthians 15, 50. I tell you this, brothers, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That is, your human body cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That is, die. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. That is the bodies of those saints who've already died. Their bodies will be raised and glorified. 
And he goes on, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So when Christ returns, the bodies of saints in heaven will be raised and transformed into glorified bodies, and believers still living at that time will also be given glorified bodies. Amen is right. There was a family that lived up in the hills uh, making their first visit to the big city. They checked into a five-star hotel and stood in amazement at the impressive hotel lobby. And leaving the reception desk, they came to the elevators. They'd never seen elevators before. And they just stared, wondering what they were there for. An older woman hobbled toward the elevator and went inside. The door closed. About a minute later, the door opened and out came a stunningly beautiful woman. <laughs> Dad couldn't stop staring. And without turning his head, he patted his son's arm and said, Go get your mother, son. Well, that's not transformation, of course. <laughs> because it'll be even more fantastic than that. When Jesus Christ returns, the bodies of saints in heaven will be raised from the grave and transformed into glorified bodies, and believers that are still alive at Christ's return will also be given transformed and glorified bodies, we, we will be like him. We will see him as he is. So we see, secondly, about these saints, uh, we see, secondly, their souls. John does not describe their bodies in heaven, but their souls. So we see where they're seated on, on thrones, heavenly thrones. We see their souls located in heaven. The third thing I want to show you about the departed saints in heaven is the different situations they came from. We see their situations. Thirdly, some of these saints were killed for their faith. They were martyred, put to death for the testimony about Christ. Again, we're looking at the middle of verse 4, that same phrase. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. The term beheaded means to be killed with an axe. And this was a specific form of execution that was common in the Roman Republic. But this term came to mean any form of public execution, beheading or not. Whatever form their execution took, John sees believers who had been killed because of their faith in Jesus. This is uh, similar, uh, I, perhaps identical to the saints in uh, chapter 6 of Revelation as Christ opens 
the fifth seal, it says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Some of the saints John sees in heaven in this second vision are those that had been martyred for their faith, beheaded, if you will, or executed in some fashion. And then John goes on to say that not all, though, were martyred like this. Uh, whatever uh, status they have, the saints that he sees in, etern in eternity, in the presence of Christ, were all faithful, whether they had been martyred or not. Verse 4 goes on at this point, it says, And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. So there are some saints that John sees who have been put to death for their faith, martyred for their faith, but whatever the case, uh, all of the saints he sees in heaven are faithful saints, those who had not worshipped the beast or his image or taken his mark. Recall we've described the beast not as an individual person, but the persecuting power of the state. In John's day, the beast took the form of the very powerful Roman Empire and its emperor worship. Uh, the Roman Empire persecuted the followers of Christ who refused to bow their knee or burn incense to the image of the Roman Empire and who refused to confess Caesar is Lord. And then the mark of the beast that John refers to here in verse 4. It's not an actual physical mark as, as many have often believed it was, not an actual mark on their forehead or their bodies. The mark on the forehead, as, as we've described in previous sermons, symbolized a way of thinking, a mindset adopted by the world system of, of that day. And the mark on the hand, on the right hand, was, was similar to this. It was a symbol that the powerful government of Rome had influenced their actions and their lifestyle. We think of doing things, carrying out activities with your right hand. And so by the way that they thought and acted, people demonstrated who they belonged to. Their thoughts and actions demonstrated that they either belonged to Satan and the beast, or they belonged to Jesus Christ and were marked and sealed by him. This second group of believers, not martyrs, but all faithful followers of Christ, had died without worshiping the beast or its image. One one scholar says this of, of the second group of saints, all faithful followers of the Lamb who have died are included. For these rulers are also described as those who did not worship the beast or its image and who refused its mark on forehead and hand. This loyalty, not the circumstances or method of their death, distinguishes them as qualified to share 
in the Lamb's rule. Indeed, this is the very thing Christ promises to believers, that persevere and endure to the end. Think of what Revelation chapter 3 uh, said earlier, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So a third thing we see about the reign of the saints in glory is their situations. Some were martyred, but all were faithful. And that's why they are reigning together with Christ. Well, there's one more thing I want to point out about the reign of the saints. There's one more element in this glimpse of glory that I want to point out to you this morning, and that is their standing before Christ. Their standing in heaven. John's particular concern is that the believers understand the position of their fellow Christians. The concern of Christ is to encourage his church and see what those who have been killed by the beast are now experiencing in eternity. And so we see this explanation of their standing before Christ. And John tells them four things about the standing of these saints. Let me move it to a different slide so I can expand on this. First, quite simply, he tells them that they're alive. John tells, their, tells them their fellow Christians are alive. Their friends and loved ones who knew Christ as their Savior and Lord have never been more alive than they are now. Look down at the very end of verse 4, that last phrase that we read earlier. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead that is, unbelieving dead, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Believers in Christ, those who were martyred and those who have conquered, have experienced this first resurrection that John mentions and have passed from death to life. They have all experienced the transition that Paul described in 2 Corinthians 5, they are away from the body and at home with the Lord. Again, this is a spiritual resurrection. I, I referred to it as the intermediate state. This is not a reference to their, the resurrection of their physical bodies. In John chapter 6, Jesus says that the resurrection of our bodies will take place on the last day, we read this in John 5 today, and then John uh, chapter 6, verse 40, Christ says this, uh, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Four times in John 6, Jesus says he will raise our bodies on the last day, the final day of history when he returns to rapture the saints and judge the world. So John tells the churches that their departed loved ones, first of all, they are alive. They've, they've been raised. They're absent from the body and present with the Lord. 
He goes on to tell them, secondly, that they are also blessed. They're blessed. Notice verse 6 in your Bible. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. Blessed uh, is that term used throughout the Beatitudes that you're familiar with. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It means to be characterized by, by happiness, to be highly favored by God, to be especially blessed by God's grace. And so how are these saints in heaven especially favored and especially blessed by God's grace. It says here, over such the second death has no power. But what is the second death? Now, what is this thing? John explains it just a few verses below, down in verse 14. He says, notice what it says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And so uh, the second death is to suffer torment in the lake of burning sulfur for eternity. It is uh, eternal conscious torment in hell. It would be an immense comfort to the church for them to know their fellow believers who've gone to be with the Lord have no fear of the second death that awaits unbelievers at the return of Christ. They have nothing to fear, and neither do you, if you know Christ as your Savior and Lord. If you've turned from your sin to rely on Jesus as the only substitute for sin, they're blessed. They have no fear of the second death. Not only do they have nothing to fear from the second death, on, on a positive note, John goes on to say that these departed saints are also priests. Uh, they have nothing to fear from the second death. And on the contrary, they have direct access to God as priests because verse 6 goes on to say, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. Because Jesus Christ acted as a faithful high priest on our behalf. Because Christ offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin on the cross. All those who, who put their faith in the atoning death of Christ have direct access to God. Back in chapter 1, John uh, wrote of this when he said, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is, this is of course, a spiritual reality for all believers now. It will be a physical reality for all believers in eternity. As priests, you and I will have direct access to God in heaven. It's difficult to comprehend, isn't it? <laughs> but John assures the churches, not only do they have nothing to fear from the second death, and they are blessed in that way, they're not only nothing to fear, they are actually given direct access 
to the presence of God through Christ. They are priests. And finally, he tells them, lastly, that they reign with Christ. Notice the very end of verse 6. We've already read this earlier in verse 4, but here John says it again, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. According to Ephesians chapter 2, all of us who have trusted Christ as our Savior and Lord are already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. God's word tells us in Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Um, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And this spiritual truth of our position in Christ becomes a physical reality when we reach heaven, either at our death or at the return of Christ in glory. At that moment, the promise of chapter 3 will be fulfilled uh, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Believers who have died I'm thinking of a, of a dear saint who attended New Covenant years ago and went on to be with the Lord. I'm thinking of Elsie Roberts. <laughs> she reigns with Christ. How would a departed saint reign with Christ, you say? Well, be certain they're not telling him what to do. Elsie might have a few thoughts. I can imagine her maybe making a suggestion. And I'm joking, of course. We'll, we will agree with and praise every judicial decision Christ makes as he executes his Father's plan for the end of the ages. We will sing his praise as it unfolds. Those who are with him are doing this now. And it's not just for the thousand years. Chapter 22 goes on to say that, <laughs> that we reign with Christ throughout eternity. So think if you've ever been bupped from coach to first class. An experience that has never, ever happened to me. Or think of the odd experience of slipping into the padded leather seats of your friend's new Cadillac. My, this is a comfortable ride. Think of the new office chair your administrator finally scrimped and 
gave you the budget to go ahead and buy and assemble it and sit down in it. Oh, this is nice. Think of how productive I can be in this chair. But we have no idea, at least I don't, of what it'll feel like to be given a throne alongside Christ. And those who have gone before us are already seated and reigning with him and will continue to do so for the rest of the gospel age. It is, as Paul said, it is uh, a glimpse of glory, an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs everything we can imagine. So what's happened to believers who've been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, as verse 4 describes What's become of those who have suffered for their faith and, and persevered till the end? And what's happened to our loved ones who have preceded us in death and, and is following Christ to the end really going to be worth it all? And Jesus answers this question by giving the struggling church a, a, a glimpse of glory. And he reveals to them the reign of the saints in heaven. And he shows them, uh, he shows them their seats, uh, seated on heavenly thrones. John describes their souls that these are in the intermediate state, awaiting glorified bodies. He describes the situations that took them there. Some were martyred; all were faithful to the end. And this standing. They're alive, they've been raised, they're blessed. The second death does not bring a drop of perspiration to their brow. They're priests before God. And they are reigning with Christ. It was September 22nd, 1997, when the U.S. Army commissioned West Point's first black cadet. 123 years after expelling him, James Webster Smith, a former slave, entered the U.S. Military Academy in 1870. And for the next four years, he was harassed for the color of his skin. White students refused to talk to him. He was forced to eat by himself while others poured slop on him. Twice he was court-martialed. He had to repeat a year. And finally, the academy expelled him after his junior year for failing an exam. Uh, Smith died of tuberculosis at the age of 26. Uh, and that was, seemed to be the sad final note of a life scarred by injustice. But 123 years later, the army endeavored 
to some degree to right its wrong. And because he had no known descendants, the commissioning certificate and gold second lieutenant's bars of James Webster Smith were presented to South Carolina State University. In the end, a courageous man finally received his due. In this world, people who deserve honor may temporarily receive dishonor, but it's only temporary because eventually such people will be vindicated. Honor will come. Sometimes the honor that is deserved comes in this world, but that honor always comes in the kingdom of God. The honor which comes from God, which is what really matters in the end. What's become of the departed saints? They are reigning with Christ in heaven. And so put a spring in our step as we think of this Christ Jesus. As you've given a glimpse of this profound privilege of the saints seated on thrones in your presence, serving as priests before your Father with access to your Father. I pray, Christ Jesus, help us to carry on. May we put one foot in front of the next in our walk of faith. Keep us forever plodding along until we reach glory or until Jesus returns. Strengthen us, quicken us, by your gracious spirit that indwells us, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.